Good afternoon. This is Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Quick question. Maybe. <laughs> they never are that quick. What's going on? Uh, we have a ton of requests coming in from parents, especially during IEP meetings, asking for the explanation of the curriculum that we're using within our district. Okay. But my goodness, it is quickly changing that they want to know methodologies. Um, they want specific methodologies listed in those IEPs. Yep. Like uh, Orton-Gillingham, uh, we have Gestalt Language, ABA, that they want those specifically listed. Um, but it isn't specifically tied just to reading. Okay. As you know, mm-hmm. many teachers are insistent that they don't want to be told how to teach, but the families are being insistent. Can you help us? Welcome to Season 2 of On the Call, Ennis Britton's special education law podcast. I'm Erin Wessendorf-Fortman. And I am Jeremy Neff. And we are ready to dig into this call. I don't know about you, Jeremy, but calls like this seem to be happening more often from districts where parents are very concerned about what is the curriculum, and won't go too far down that political minefield, but also specifically for students on IEPs, what is the methodology that you're using with my child? And then almost like a non-listen, not for all, but some parents, from a non-listen, and I want this. I don't care what it is you're using, but I want this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they were good old days, but let's just say the old days of trusting the teachers to handle this sort of thing are long gone across the spectrum, but that bleeds into special education for sure. Oh, 100%. And I think, I mean, to be fair, I want to have a good handle on what my kids are doing in school as well. And I watch their progress on everything they're doing. But there's also some element to, I won't tell you how to teach if you won't tell me how to lawyer Mm -hmm. until things have gone sideways. And I think clearly in the cases we see, things are going sideways. And the goal from these callers, as we are with all of our podcasts, right, is to try to work through the practicality of if we see a situation start to tilt, to go sideways, how do we maybe get in front of it to bolster it back up straight down the path? Yeah. Yeah, I like my little analogy there. I'm going with it. But at least in general, we know methodologies don't have to be included within an IEP. Uh, The regs are pretty specific in saying an IEP has to have just the very fundamentals, the written statement for each child with a disability that includes academic achievement, functional performance, the present levels of all of that in Ohio known as, we call them the plops in other places, plaps. I, I there, there's not a pop guard in the world that will protect our microphones from whatever <laughs> weird sound just got picked up there. But it's the present levels of functional and academic performance, right? Blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. It's fine. I really enjoy that one. Um, but also describing how progress is measured and describing what services the child received. And I think with that, in describing what services the child will receive, people can get a little wonky on what that looks like and how descriptive we need to be or not be. But the regs have been pretty clear on what this means. Well, and, and if they weren't clear, it's it's not as though this hasn't been explored. So if if there was like a kind of a scout for being, um, you know, a, a nerd about special education law, like Eagle Scout level would be that you've spent time delving into the comments on I the did. regulations. Does that uh, mean I'm Eagle Scout level? Uh, yeah, I think we're both Eagle Scouts, man. 
<laughs> I want my badge. Yeah. Can I get a badge? I would love it. Well, yeah, we have to think about what like the like induction ceremony and stuff too. But well, we'll work on that on a, a later episode. I'm not drinking blood. No, nope, no, that's not. Well, I was not an Eagle Scout, but I don't think that was part of it. Um, so if you if you dive into there's these things that are uh, the comments. They're published comments where people, when the regulations were first published, and we're dealing with fairly old regs at this point, when they were published, there was a chance for advocates across the spectrum to submit questions, suggestions, that sort of thing. And then uh, some of those were published officially and then commented on by the U.S. Department of Education. And so questions about, well, hey, when you say you need to describe these services, do you mean that you need to like name some off-the-shelf brand? And the U.S. Department of Ed said, no, to be clear, we're not saying that that's a requirement in every IEP. They're not saying it's Something that would never be appropriate. It's but not not. It's not not. Yeah, I think that's but it, correct. But it could be, it right? Be. It's one of those, it was a not. But I did love the changes none. That was my mm-hmm. favorite. Here's comments on this area. Here's comments on this area. Here's our decision. Changes none. Which meant keep on. Yeah, carry we, on. We can say with confidence, you, it's not required to list a methodology. But we can also say based on uh, some case law and kind of reading into those comments that it might occasionally be appropriate. I would say, on average, no. The vast majority, I <laughs> right. would say no. Yeah. Even now, it may change in some of states that are working more towards science of reading in really promoting that within the buildings. But if it's more promoted within a buildings, I question again why it's being put in an IEP. But the U.S. Department of Education even indicated in some of the the regulatory comment on this and then some of the additional comments as we move forward. What we're talking about are the comments from 2006, so almost 20 years old. And I think that's the last time any real comments were made. Your eyes just went wide to realize how much we've all aged. Yeah, I may have a Seinfeld analogy at some point. I don't know if it's going to work into this episode. And I'm like, you know, sometimes people don't respond well to that. And I looked up the episode and I'm like, oh my God, it's 30 years old. That's why they don't (laughs) respond well to it. But with it, I think what the U.S. Department of Education was trying to do was to give educators flexibility, which is beneficial because I know that not only one tactic works. I'm not a trained educator. Thank thank goodness for all of the individuals who are. But not one tactic works. And you have to use all of the tools in your toolbox often in order to meet kids where they are to allow them to make progress. And if we're putting it into an IEP, we best better be certain this is the tool. Capital T. Yeah. For the or tool or both. Both, maybe both. (laughs) That we are using that will help this kid make progress in the general education curriculum and in the areas that are needed within the student's IEP. What I did love, though, as well in the U.S. Department of Education, and they very well pulled from, they said the question to focus on, now this is pre-Andrew F., and in some cases have pulled this out as well, is to focus on whether the methods, that methodology, is reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress. And we know it's pre-Andrew F. because it doesn't talk about to make appropriate progress in light of the child's circumstances. But I really don't think fundamentally that standard changes. Yeah, I agree. And so we're looking at, does this method, is it reasonably calculated to have the child make progress? And 
we as a district, when we're coming to those decisions, and I think this one is, is we're pulling from all the old cases and having this methodology discussion. This was a Sixth Circuit case, came out of 2004, so predated these regulations. It was the Deal versus Hamilton County case. And it just said, listen, you can't predetermine. And I think that's where then some of the focus and conversation at the table with parents getting into the weeds of methodology and curriculum can be important if it is such a focus of the parents and concern for their children. And and I know deal is not the case we're going to talk about in depth here, but it it is a great one uh, to this day. And I do think it's still pretty good law uh, here in the Sixth Circuit and uh, pretty persuasive across the country. And part of what crept up there and will creep up in the case we'll talk about later is just this, what do you do as as an IEP team in the face of persistent, let's say, less than expected growth? And, and that's what um, burned the district in the deal case and in the case we're going to talk about later uh, in this episode. Well, and by later, you mean now. Now? Okay, yeah, now. <laughs> right now. So that's what the law says, right? When we talk about the very high-level basics of the law and then the U.S. Department of Education. So let's look at one example of really putting this into action. And so this is a case out of Falmouth School Department. It's out of the First Circuit. came out in August of 22, and it's versus Doe. So nothing too exciting with regard to names of parents. Uh, or Mr. Na- and Mrs. Doe. I thought that was really polite. It doesn't always, You don't always see that. It's a Maine school district. <laughs> yeah. I don't no, I've, I've never Those been to Maine. Mainers. Have you been to Maine? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, you know, they have uh, very cold beaches. <laughs> um, uh, if anybody's listening from Maine, it's it's gorgeous, right? It's beautiful. Uh, Acadia National Park. Okay, I've not yeah. been. I don't know. Um, LL Bean Outlet stores. <laughs> oh, see, okay. Game. I'm <laughs> doing this. Talking. I mean, beach and cold don't really work well for me. I either like to go to the cold or to the beach. I went Two to a ship commissioning purposes. there, of all things. The, U- the USS Shiloh. Yeah. Ship. Yeah, so ship. Why? Uh, it's a story that is too long to capture <laughs> in this. The bottom line, I was there. It was really neat. Saw Colin Powell uh, present this back in the, what, early 90s, I think. It was okay. really neat. Neat experience. Uh, all right. Nothing to do with this main school nothing district in a methodology that no. you've now been I, I don't know where Falmouth is. You, so. You've been to a ship commissioning. <laughs> this pop, the pops are really the pop protectors. Is that what they're called? So tell me about this case, Aaron. <laughs> Sorry, we got a little Tell off all track. of us about this <laughs> Tell case. Tell all of us about this case. So, and I, there has to be more to this case. As always, we read into all of the details, and I just find it to be funky because it went all the way up to the first, first circuit court in August of 22. So that meant it, that they went through the main level of the main state level of hearing officer if they had an appeal there and then went to the district court underneath the First Circuit and then went to the First Circuit. They are one step away from the U.S. Supreme Court here. Not all cases really go up that far. And really, it was a fight about methodology. So the long and the short of it is student comes in to the district in first grade, had gone to a private preschool and a private kindergarten, comes in in first grade and is reading his literacy skills were at a pre-K level. So pretty soon the district goes, we have a problem. They did an evaluation. Perfectly fine. They did exactly what they were supposed to do from a child find IDEA perspective. Students on an IEP, onward and upward we go. Problem becomes is that the student doesn't really make a lot of expected growth. Teachers are making comments. He's a non-reader halfway through his first grade year. 
Well, okay, I got problems because I have teachers who are saying very clearly, he's a non-reader. And then they start to dabble in different programs. There's nothing written written into the IEP about what methodology. There are reading services clearly targeted to help the student, but there's not a program. So teacher dabbles in a Wilson program, dabbles in a Spire, S-P-I-R-E program through this district and still doesn't really make a ton of progress. So Let me jump in. I I think for any reading specialists that are listening, you know, when we're dealing with, you know, in some cases like pre-literacy type skills here, that probably doesn't sound crazy that you're taking a variety of approaches to try and move this kid forward who shows up as a non-reader. So it doesn't sound crazy, but you know, stick with us. There's a long history on this one. You're getting ahead of the depression. You can already see it setting in, right, for your reading specialists in the world, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But by the time we're in second grade, so we've gone all the way through first grade, we're still working on our skills. Not a ton of progress. S- slow and steady. We're not not making progress. We're just not making expected progress. And no indication here of any cognitive explanation of this. None None whatsoever. None in any of the evaluations, none from the family. And so halfway through second grade year, through evaluations and other pieces, the district team points out very clearly the student's biggest challenge is orthographic, right? It's in the orthographic area of reading. And that's really where the student struggles. Also struggles with some phonological processing. So nothing that is screams, hey, we have a cognitive issue here on reading, but here's really where the struggles are. Problem is school meets, school tries to do what they do. Parents are frustrated, I think, by the lack of full progress. Somehow there's an arrangement where the student goes half day to private reading services. The district doesn't really change what it's doing, but the private reading services are not its. It's a little strange. So we get into third grade year. There's a private evaluation. Not altogether surprisingly, the private evaluation then recommends Linda Mood Bell curriculum in this Seeing Stars. This is, as a side note, this is neither a dig nor an advertisement for any of these programs. But that's what happens in this evaluation. And the school district says, you know what? We'll increase some time. We may make a little bit of reference to a little bit of Linda Mood Bell, but we aren't going to really full bore, get behind exactly what you're saying here. Parents eventually fight. Parents revoke consent for services. And then kids on a 504 muddles around even more in reading and eventually goes out and is completely parent privately placed. These parents are fairly sophisticated reading between the lines because they knew they revoked consent under IDEA, but then they um, invoked, if you will, um, rights and protections under 504 as they're doing this. So there's there's a lot going on here trying to figure out what else is behind this. Certainly plenty of red flags that this might be headed toward a battle. And I don't see anywhere in the facts that the district was not meeting or the district wasn't making changes to the IEP. They just weren't putting in this sort of reading instruction, this certain methodology. And an important fact with that is among those changes, they were restricting this child's placement. So he was not with his typical peers for a significant part of the day to try and address some of these deficits. And they were increasing reading services. They were giving um, summer services is what they call them in the case, otherwise known, I think, in other areas as extended school year services, or maybe they weren't recognizing them as that. Well, they, uh, they were offering them, right? And the family was often declining and then arranging for their private services. And you really, the school is in a tough spot here because- it's going to come around to the question of, well, the student does make some progress, right? And the family had arranged things by then. 
between spending half days in the family-arranged and funded private reading services, only spending summers with family-arranged private reading services, yep. how could how would the school have had an opportunity to show that when you show up with a kid that is a non-reader, you give us a relatively short span of time to try and address that because, you know, non-readers, that could be it's not just that, oh, well, preschool didn't do its job. It could be years of this child not receiving what they need based on their disability mm-hmm. and uh, saying, well, you know, we gave you basically a year to try it or a couple of years to try it. And now we're doing everything on our own. And you could never establish what you might have been able to do. They were in a tough spot. I think they were. And that's why I think there's more behind maybe the facts and the relationship that were happening here, because the court says by the time the district was willing to do any of this specific methodology requested by the parents, and and it was a quote, too little, too late, which I don't love because, I mean, IDEA is always here. So we don't just resolve cases backwards. We also look forward. And how do we make sure we're trying to limit liability in the future? We should be able to have some capacity to do this. But essentially, the long and the short of this case, because we could go, to me, I think there's lots of areas we could go on and on 19 pages with. of decision. Uh, shut up. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Aaron but, just threw this on my desk and was like, just, just glance read it. through this. Just glance. Here, two minutes, we're going to go record a pod. I gave you more than two minutes. You it's did. fine. But really what the court said is none of the IEPs reasonably calculated to ensure the student would receive FAPE because they weren't giving the methodology, which was a little shocking, but it was specific to when, and I think this is where something can be then morphed into practicality here, is that the district was not focused on the programs it was providing and not seeing the growth that was expected, right? Seeing minor growth, but you should have probably had more. Seeing this orthographic issue, seeing the processing issue, what were the methodologies that the district was designing or using to target those areas of need for this student? It sounds like the way that the court was understanding this, again, courts are often not educators as well, is the court was understanding it. You can't just slap a reading program on a kid and expect the kid to make growth. If the student has specific areas of need in certain reading skills, you have to have a program that is going to target those areas of reading skills. And if we're not doing it with our slap sticker approach, then you need to be pivoting and targeting elsewhere. And that's really, I think, the biggest takeaway from this Falmouth decision, in my opinion, when I read this case is, are we focused on where the students' needs are and are the methodologies that we are using targeting the needs of those students? Well, so let's let's think about then with some of those lessons learned from the case, let's let's continue down that road of what are some practical tips for a team like the caller at the beginning of this episode where you're faced with these demands for specific methodologies. And I think at least from my opinion, which it's why we're on the podcast, we get to give these, (laughs) is I think at the first, when these questions come up in a team meeting or in an email followed up by a team meeting or phone call followed by a team meeting, is listening and asking questions of parents first. What is the need that they are seeing, right? What, Why are they wanting this specific methodology, whether it's for math or reading or behavior? What is it that they see as that need? And then having the ability and bolstering our educators and understanding they have the ability to feel comfortable in talking about what they do in the classroom. It's not second-guessing how they do their job, but helping to explain to a parent, this is why I use this, because it helps target 
X for student or Y for student. And when a student has a behavior to respond in this, this is when I pull out this piece from this toolkit to use to use it to address that behavior. I think we're afraid of having those conversations. And the more that we can help educators feel comfortable having that conversation while listening to the parents for what their concerns are, I think the better off we are. Yeah. And, and when there are red flags, and there certainly were in the case we just reviewed, I think taking extra time not just to have the conversation about um, what we're doing and why, but also explaining how it'll look. Because you and I have both had plenty of cases, and again, we're not endorsing or arguing against any particular methodology, but we've had cases where a private company that has one methodology, they have only one tool, they will come in and we say, well, wait a second, Like, we're not really seeing the growth we were hoping to in, I don't know, sight words or whatever. Oh, well, that's because our approach focuses on this. And you'll see these very discrete splinter skills and it'll all magically come together. And sometimes it does, which is great. Mm-hmm. If that's what we're thinking, spelling that out in a meeting and then just as importantly, spelling it out in writing at the time might go a long way to then explaining when the family gradually chips away or adds in private services. Well, no, everything is because of these private services. We can say, no, actually, that's exactly the kind of growth we would have expected if we were allowed to continue to implement our program. Correct. And not being afraid of digging into that progress, looking at your progress reports and making sure your data is showing what you think it is. Mm -hmm. Because if we are looking at, we have slow and steady growth, but we were anticipating, let's just say for whatever reason, we were expecting a growth on a goal of 80% over three out of four trials. Insert whatever skill here. Our baseline when we made that goal was at 20%. Well, 80 is pretty high. But if we have made growth from 30 to 40 to 50, and that's where we are, and we are 90% of the way through that IEP year, I'm going to have some questions as to why we targeted at 80. Yes, we've made growth, but was it our anticipated and expected growth? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so some of that is not only just explaining then uh, what's happening at the table, what's happening in the classroom, looking at what the parents want. Are we setting realistic goals? Yeah, put an exclamation point on that one, right? Sometimes the lack of expected growth has nothing to do with the methodology or how the student's doing or anything like that. It's because we had a bad goal to begin with. And don't just go along to get along with bad goals. The earlier we step back and say, you know what? When your child enrolled with us, he'd been in private preschool and first grade, we had to make some, you know, informed predictions about where things not don't say best guesses i hate that you're not guesses you're professionals we made some informed predictions and you know what we think we were off and here's why and here's where we want to set this goal and i think with that it's feeling the ability to be confident and not quiet at the table And oftentimes we can walk into IEP meetings, and yes, if you or I are there, automatically it's already more confrontational, not by virtue of anything other than, ooh, they brought their attorneys, but we're there because someone else brought their attorneys and onward we go. But having a response to the ask, right, listening to that ask, listening for the why behind the ask, and then not being quiet or not just simply saying, we don't do that here, right? Oh, we're not doing that program. We have this program to it. And that's fine if we do, but talk about why the substitute program helps then target where those students' needs are, I think is really important. I love these sorts of areas because I do think it's one where in looking at a methodology conversation, it goes to the fundamentals of listening for that parent participation, listening for you know the consideration of what they're bringing, the open communication and dialogue that is 
is really important, building up our staff to make sure they feel confident in those conversations. And then the most important piece, not maybe not the most, but one of the very important pieces, top two, is making sure all of that is documented within a prior written notice so that everyone is aware of the conversation that happened when it happened and all of the supporting reasons why. Thank you for tuning in to On The Call. If you have found value in our discussion and think your educator colleagues would as well, please share this podcast through text, word of mouth, staff meetings, chats, and teacher's lounge. Your support is what drives this podcast. We work to bring real-life situations and practical tips to each episode. If you have a topic you would like to suggest or want to share your thoughts, please connect with us on social media or email us at podcast at ennisbritton.com. A quick note, this podcast is intended to be used for general information only and is not legal advice. If you have a specific question, please consult an attorney. We are looking forward to being on the call with you again soon.